You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all ye shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave them a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean's depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all the nations, you princes and all rulers on earth young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. He has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his saints, of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. What should worship look like? So we know that October is October 31st, the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And if we were to travel back in time over 500 years ago, uh, a typical worship service on a Sunday would look very different than, than even it looks today. So, for example, before the Protestant Reformation, basically worship service, uh, you were merely spectators. Uh, you, you came to the service, you sat down, uh, but you would listen to trained choirs sing. Uh, you would also listen to the priest, uh, read scripture in Latin, which wasn't the common language of the average person. So you'd be hearing something that you didn't even understand. And, and you'd also be focusing on the drama of, of the mass. Uh, in other words, like the actions of the priest and the bread and the cup. Uh, so, so in every way, you were a spectator. You were not really a participant in worship. And is that the way it's supposed to be? So even as we think of today's service, you've done things that are the result of reform in the church way back, beginning with the Protestant Reformation. We've sung choruses together. So we didn't just listen to one person singing, but, but we joined in, congregational singing. The fact that I stand basically in the center of the room at a pulpit was all part of the Protestant Reformation to say in worship, central to worship is the word of God. And so that's even displayed in the, the very location of, of, of furniture, not having a split lectern like where one's on the left, one's on the right, uh, and the message was read from one place then preached from another. But, but no, to direct your attention to the center. So I want to take a look at worship through the eyes of this particular psalm, Psalm 148. So you know, as you turn to any psalm, the first thing you always want to look for is, does the psalm have a title? Is there any kind of superscription or note about the psalm? 
And so you'll notice right away, Psalm 148 has none of those. So in other words, we, we know it's the Word of God. Uh, we don't know who the author is. It's always possible it was David, but we don't know definitively. Uh, we don't know anything about the particular historical context in which this psalm was written. But it is very clear that this psalm is a call to worship. And, and it presents to us, I think, a model of, of what worship should look like. And if it's possible that 500 years ago, worship needed some reform to it, is it also possible that we always want to look at, is our worship mirroring the model that God has given us? So look at me at Psalm 148, and you'll notice how the psalm begins and ends, which is a very telling feature. Exact same words, praise the Lord. In other words, when you see a portion of Scripture begin and end like that, it's called an inclusio. It's like a, a literary envelope. It locks the whole thing together. So the whole purpose of this psalm is to praise and worship the Lord. And so when you think about this, the psalms were, were really the ancient Israel's hymn book. This was how they worshiped. When you think of Jesus Christ walking on earth, the Old Testament and the psalms were, were really the Bible he grew up with. Now, we're thankful, as we'll see, that we have the revelation in Christ in the New Testament, but, but the kind of way just why the Psalms, why the Old Testament is so important from a Christian perspective. But you notice in this particular Psalm, throughout it, you have the title Lord. All uppercase letters, and that's to distinguish in the English translation that this is not just any name for God, but, but this is the name Yahweh. So this is the most holy name for God. Uh, it's the name that emphasize, emphasizes he's the self-existent one. So nothing brought him into being. God always was and always will be. Now think of why that's important when you think about worship. So if, in fact, God was caused by something, then that would mean there's something greater than God. So God wouldn't be really worthy of undivided attention and worship if he was caused or brought into being by something else. So that very title is driving home, unlike all pagan deities that surrounded the people of Israel, Yahweh is distinct. He's not created by man. Uh, he's not limited in his power. So when you think of Old Testament gods of the other nations, they're limited in power. So they only cover a certain amount of territory. And if you get outside of that territory, well, then you better find the God who controls that territory. So Yahweh is emphasizing his self-existence. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 and looking at the first two commandments. As we think about what should worship look like? And so I think what we're, we're starting to see here, even in Psalm 148, is true worship is Trinitarian in nature. Uh, and we'll get to, well, how does that work? Because obviously in the Old Testament, you, you don't have the Trinity fully and clearly revealed, but you definitely have allusions to it. So look at Exodus chapter 20, 
And here we have a, a clear definition of, of what God demands. And so I'll read verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So strictly, we see worship is to be monotheistic, but to worship and recognize the God of the Bible, that that is the one we are to bend down before and be in submission and obedience to. Now, the reason I'm pointing all that out is that might be self-evident. Well, of course, yeah, we're we're Christians. Um, we, we get that. But remember, I've been sharing with you over the past couple of weeks some of the findings in this state of theology survey, which should be very troubling for us because it's revealing a shift within generally Christian thinking that, that's moving us away from the biblical teaching. So here would be another example. In that survey, they asked, they made this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So what they were looking for now is, do you agree, disagree with that? Among those who said they were evangelical Christians, over half, 56%, agreed with that statement. Now, I kind of think, what does that mean, that they're agreeing God accepts the worship of Christians, Judaism, and Islam. They're saying, really, it doesn't matter. Now, notice when you read Exodus 20, the God of Israel is a distinct God. He is very different from Allah. And in one sense, an incomplete picture we have if you remove the Old Test, New Testament like Judaism does. So we realize that as we think of worship, it is Trinitarian in nature. It is God-centered, but we can only worship completely because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I'll go to the verse that I had you look at for our meditation, Hebrews chapter 12. Because it is true that in the Old Testament, God's revelation was sufficient for those in the Old Testament to worship him. Even though he hadn't fully revealed himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But again, there are allusions to that. Verses like, let us create man in our image. Uh, Tower of Babel, let us go down and see them. Um, Christophanes. But, but listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 12, which sort of give us now the privilege that we have as believers to worship. And, and how that is distinctly different, though it's the same God we come before as the people of Israel, but our worship is completed now in Christ. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, 
the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And notice what verse 24 drives home. Why is this worship distinctly different than when the people gathered at Mount Sinai and, and they were fearful they couldn't even touch the mountain, only Moses could go up? Because now in Christ, we have a mediator. We're, we're able to go into God's presence. And that is obviously the result of the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So it is very true. We should speak of worship, true worship, being Trinitarian in nature, which means, I think, in music we select, uh, even in our prayers, in our conversations, we, we recognize each one in the Trinity as being worthy of worship. Now, you don't have to keep like a mental list, you know, how many times did I say God the Father? How many times did I say Jesus? Uh, because it is true, when you speak of one, if you understand the Trinity, you, you really are speaking of all three. But I think it's a good task for us to sometimes just look through music we're singing. You know, what, what person in the Trinity is, is it emphasizing? And I think sadly, sometimes in, in many contemporary Christian music, only Jesus is mentioned. Now, that's great. Jesus is Lord and Savior. But, but let's not forget, there's the Father and the Spirit that play a key role. So let's go back to Psalm 148. And this psalm is refreshingly straightforward in that not only is, Trinity, not only is true worship Trinitarian in nature, but true worship is comprehensive. You know, I think it's easy for us to think of worship as the worship service. But we need to expand and broaden our understanding. Worship is to permeate everything. Uh, permeate our thoughts and everything. Permeate every part of our life. And, and Psalm 148 does a good job, I think, of driving that home in breaking down what exactly is to be worshiping God. And why? So look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. We're sort of taken much like Revelation does, takes us into the throne room and says, think about invisible powers and authorities are worshiping God. His, his holy angels, the elect angels, are constantly worshiping him. They, they go back and forth doing his bidding that God commands them to do. So worship isn't just what we see right here. I mean, there, there's another whole heavenly realm that is very real, which I, I think just like we sung this morning, uh, we won't see that yet. We see it by faith now. One day we will see it by sight. And we will see what, what is this heavenly scene of, of all these angels and heavenly hosts. Uh, this is a word, a phrase that means the armies of heaven. And what, what a picture to us of how comprehensive 
the worship of God is. Because we can often get very myopic in our thinking. You know, we look at just church statistics being very low in New Hampshire, Vermont, kind of think, oh, nobody's really committed to worship anymore. Uh, now, that may be true on a human perspective, but that's not altering the glory of God and who he is. Notice verses 3 through 10. Now, shift from like the invisible world and authorities to, to planets, everything else. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. So notice right there you have a reason. Why is this? Because he brought them into being. So you can kind of see where this is going. If God brought the planets into being and they're to worship him and reflect his glory, then why would we think anything less of us? Because we're not just created by him, but we're created in the image of God, which puts us in a place of, as Genesis says, dominion, authority. Notice it goes on there in verse 6. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. I love how it, it's so comprehensive. Uh, it's interesting. You go from the planets to then, you notice in verse 7, it says these great sea creatures. Uh, this is a very interesting word in the, the Old Testament. Sometimes it's rendered sea monsters. Uh, sometimes it's also rendered dragons. And it, and it raises this interesting thought. Are there tremendously big creatures that God has made that maybe date way, way back and are still around. In other words, I, I think you could look at some of this and say that this would fit or explain even the issue of dinosaurs in the Bible. That, that unlike, you know, evolution, which says you've got all these things living millions and millions of years before man, if you read the book of Job, it seems to imply that these great creatures were living during the same time as man, which would fit a literal young earth understanding of God creating in seven days. Show you an example of this. Look at Job 41. And maybe you've, you've not thought about this before, um, but one of the criticisms sometimes people bring up against the Bible is they'll say, well, you know, the Bible never talks about dinosaurs. Well, I think it does speak about them. Uh, not that it mentions like certain names, but, but the description of some of these creatures would, would fit what we might call some kind of dinosaur. Look at Job 41. And, and this all fits in with, again, God, all of creation is to worship him even from these big sea creatures and stuff to these little birds that fly around. Um, look at Job 41 and verses 15 through 
20. Or actually, I'll read verse 1 and then 15 through 20. So this is God at this point sort of interrogating Job, saying, Job, you know, you sit down for a minute. I'm going to ask you some questions. Notice verse 1 of chapter 41. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Now, you probably see, you know, a footnote that might say something like, in some translations, say crocodile, but, but clearly the description does not fit a crocodile. And I'll go over to verse 15, and God's continuing his conversation. He's saying, look around you at these different creatures. He says, his back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between them. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. Now, you have, you have God kind of saying to Job, look at these creatures around you. As powerful and intimidating as they look, I control them. It's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty, so much so that he, he almost kind of like implies, I, I can move them like you would your dog on a leash. Like, like I control them. And so notice when we think of worship, to stop and step back and think, wow, all of nature was created to glorify God, to reflect his attributes, his holiness, now, obviously, sin has caused now all of creation to groan. But yet it still does reflect his glory. It's just that that glory is now tarnished. It's harder to see. It's distorted because of sin. Which tells us if that's how God created everything to be, that's what it means when it speaks about a new heaven and new earth. When, when everything will be according to its design purpose. So let's go back to Psalm 148 and notice in this description that I was just reading, you get to verse 10, talks about wild animals, all cattle, small creatures, flying birds. Everything is dependent on God for both its existence and its continual preservation. And I think sometimes we forget that. We realize, well, God created everything. Uh, but do you ever stop and think, if, if this were possible, and it's not, but if God was like, I need a day off. I just need to not watch over anything, not preserve anything. This world would come to an end. So God didn't just create everything. He's constantly feeding his creation, uh, supplying rain, uh, everything like that. Uh, the seasons moving in and out. What, what a picture for us of why God is worthy of worship. But it's very true that although worship is comprehensive, those things we talked about, they can't worship God like we can in Christ. Because you notice verse 11, it shifts now to, what about people? You know, we, we've looked at planets, we've looked at creatures, small and large. What about people? 
Notice it says, the kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. In other words, all were created to worship God, to bow down before him. Now, we know that because of sin, that's not what we see. But that doesn't render anyone without excuse. Because based on what we've just read, that's where what we talk about general revelation comes in. God indelibly stamps his existence all around us. So it renders everyone without excuse. So true worship is to be comprehensive. And probably one of the most familiar statements on that is the Westminster Confession, a very opening question which tells you this is so important that it's put right in the front of the catechism. You know, what is the chief end and purpose of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever, which is exactly what this psalm says. But let's look at how the psalm closes in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. He has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. True worship speaks of our shared identity as saints. I think this is something we we forget. You have the ability to worship personally. So during the week, if you have your devotions, you're praying, you're in the car driving, you look at creation, you can certainly worship personally. But corporate worshiping is a way that we're identifying what it means to share in the redemption and forgiveness of sins. And so you notice this psalm is meant to be a corporate worship psalm. Not not for people to be spectators, but, but active participants in worship. And so you notice in verse 14, it talks about how he has raised up for his people a, a horn. Uh, typically, the word horn refers to strength. So when we, when we worship God, we are glorifying him, we are honoring him. And, and couldn't we say that as a result of that, we are strengthened in our faith? We are united and being identified as his children set apart to him. And again, you notice the end of verse 14, the people close to his heart. Now, all creation is to worship him, but only because we're made in the image of God that we have been redeemed by Christ can we be described as a people close to God's heart, his his children, his sons and daughters. I shared a, One thing earlier from the state of theology, here's another statement. Every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. So that's the statement. What do evangelical Christians tend to think about that? 68% agreed, 26% disagreed. So just kind of think about that. You have one quarter of evangelical Christians saying, you know what, being a part of a church really is not important. In other words, you can substitute that with, you know, reading the Bible with your family, doing something else uh, in place of corporately gathering. Well, 
that should raise lots of red flags because this psalm is to be a corporate experience. Notice it says, you are to praise God together. Uh, the verb there is an imperative, to, to exalt God, to lift him up, and not just privately, but in the company of one another. Because that identifies and shows that we are saints. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll look at what Paul has to say about worship in Colossians 3. And verses 15 through 17. Colossians 3. And, and Paul's in a discussion about guidelines for, for living a Christ-centered life. Uh, and worship is all about being Christ-centered. Uh, but listen to verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice that corporate element here, you know, teach and admonish one another. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude. Like your, your singing in a Sunday morning service is not just for your benefit. You're, you're encouraging one another. You're, you're lifting up your voice, encouraging each other, but also proclaiming to God your, your praise of him, your exaltation of him. So I think it's good for us to realize God is most glorified when we do acknowledge and worship him corporately. He does want us to worship him throughout the week, every day. But I think also when we gather like this, worship is about being participants. And that can be tough sometimes because God challenges us. It can be tough because maybe sometimes we don't feel that good. Or maybe sometimes we have stuff going on in our life that makes worship uncomfortable. But that's all goes with being a participant to be refined and molded into his image. So as important as worship is, it is kind of interesting. You have no order of a church service in the Bible. And maybe that's to prevent it from just becoming ritualistic. You know, if we had a certain list, but well, we just went down the list and we must have worshiped. So it is a state of the heart. And so maybe during the week, you know, read Psalm 148. Kind of reflect on that, what it means to worship. Let's pray. Our gracious God, help us to see worship as a tremendous privilege and that there is joy in coming together, uh, not just in your presence, but coming together with our brothers and sisters in Christ to exalt and praise you. We ask in your name. Amen.